First Peter, and we talked about a living hope in a world that we look around and it seems like a world gone mad. How do we live a born-again life in a world that seems to be dying and, and going crazy? Well, this week we're continuing on in the book of First Peter. You can turn there with me if you haven't already. We're going to still be in chapter 1, covering just four verses this week. I want to start out with the observation that that living hope that we talked about last week, that living hope that we're going to be talking about for a long time as we go through First Peter, that living hope that Christ has obtained for you and given to you is no random thing. We talked about last week how it was according to the foreknowledge of God. How you're being kept by the power of God. But even as our human timeline is concerned, even as our understanding of this living hope is concerned on human terms, this living hope that you enjoy if you belong to Christ didn't just come out of the blue. Alright? The promise of that living hope to come was the object of wonder of the prophets of old. It's also the marvel of angels. We see here starting in verse 10, it says, Peter writes, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So we see verse 10 here starts with concerning this salvation. That same salvation that you and I partake, that same salvation that we read about and covered last week, that same salvation by which we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, that same salvation in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood that cleanses us of our sins as we read about, concerning this Salvation where God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Concerning this salvation where we receive what we read last week, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you. That inheritance that far surpasses all the riches that you could possibly surmount here on this earth in this existence. Concerning this salvation which currently results right now in inexpressible joy, but ultimately results in glorification with the eternal salvation of our souls. Concerning this marvelous salvation, a salvation that you are experiencing if you have given your life to Christ, and also this salvation that the prophets who prophesied about the grace that would be yours, they searched and inquired carefully about this salvation. What does that mean? It means that God spoke His words through prophets of old about this grace that would be ours. And those prophets themselves did obtain grace, but they received the gift of God's salvation without seeing the full accomplishment of it. The prophets received the promise of a Messiah. The prophets spoke of a Messiah. They awaited a Messiah. They yearned 
for a Messiah. Yet they never met the Messiah, nor did they ever have a personal relationship with the Messiah, nor did they fully comprehend in their time all it was that the Messiah would accomplish. You see, the prophets, just like all of the faithful in the Old Testament, they were saved by what? By sacrifice? No, they were saved by grace through faith. Read Romans chapter 4, where we see Abraham was justified by faith. Read the entire chapter of Hebrews 11, where we see all of the faithful that are laid out, the hall of faith, the heroes of the Old Testament. It was by faith. They were always saved by faith. And one thing that is true is that salvation has always been available to sinners. Always. Reconciliation to God is something that God has always offered. And it has always only been by God's grace through faith. So God has always been a gracious God, a saving God, a reconciling, restoring, loving God, but the greatest display of His grace, of His saving, of His reconciling and His restoring love would come in the fullness of time when God became flesh and dwelt among us. So we see here that the prophets searched and inquired carefully. They they received the words that God spoke to them. They wrote it down as Scripture. They would have spoken it to the nation, but then they themselves would search their own writings. That's fascinating to think about. You know, This says a lot actually about our inspiration of Scripture and how we got our Bible. The Old Testament prophets, they in fact were writing down what they themselves could not even fully comprehend at that moment. They were writing down the words of God that were revealing truth to them. This is no product of their own creativity. They were not writing human words put on paper, merely their own thoughts or their own hopes or desires. They even searched and inquired of their own writings and the writings of other prophets to earnestly make sense of them. What all does this mean? What is this promise? And that's because the ultimate source of these writings were not the prophets. The ultimate source of these writings was God Himself. So the prophets meticulously combed through their own divinely authored documents. But they were searching the Scripture, searching around them for what? For He who was promised in their prophecies. For the Mashiach, the Messiah, the Christ, the One who would deliver us. They were as Verse 11 says here, inquiring what person or time the the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and subsequent glories. They wanted to know who the Messiah was. They wanted to know when He would come, how He would deliver them. And notice again, it was the Spirit of Christ in them who was indicating who He was and what He would do. Christ is, Christ always was, and Christ always will be. Christ is God and always was God. And the Spirit 
God is inseparable from Christ and the Spirit was at work revealing precisely what we as a human race needed to know precisely at the time that we needed to know it. The Spirit was revealing to the prophets and the prophets were foretelling to us precisely what we as humans needed to know about God's plan to redeem us at the given time that He would reveal it. You know, this is why Peter would later write in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, he says, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit was indicating to the prophets, meaning He was revealing to them, and the Spirit was making plain to them that which was predicted. You see, this is, can kind of confuse us sometimes, but let me be very clear. The gospel plan, God's gospel plan, was never intended to be some kind of mystic puzzle. Alright? God doesn't work in riddles. God doesn't give revelation that are only for the most astute and most intelligent and brightest among us to figure out. However, God's gospel plan was a mystery in many ways. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is that the Old Testament faithful, as they earnestly seek God, could not have possibly known everything about Jesus Christ before that fullness of time when Jesus Christ was revealed. It wasn't intended for them to know absolutely everything about who Jesus was and the moment he would arrive and everything like that. But God gave us as a human race everything that he intended to reveal to us at the precise time in history that he intended to reveal it. Everything we needed to know at that given point in time and he gave us the ability to know what he required of us to know. You see, throughout the timeline of Scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, we see more and more the stair steps of God revealing His plan to us throughout history with more and more clarity. Now, what exactly was revealed to the prophets? Well, as it says here in short, a very summary statement, it says the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. And it is impossible for me in the time that we have here to go through all of the messianic prophecies that we have about Jesus. All of the ones that have already been fulfilled in the first coming and those that we await fulfillment in the second coming. It's impossible for me to cover all of them. But let's just go through real quick what some of those things are. We have that he would be born of a virgin, that he would be born in Bethlehem, that he would be born in the line of Judah and in the lineage of David, that he would speak in parables, that he would be called the Son of God, but also that he would be betrayed, he would be ridiculed, soldiers would gamble for his garments, and his hands and his feet would be pierced. He would be a sacrifice for sin but also that he would rise from the dead, he would ascend, and he would be seated at God's right hand. You see, some of these prophecies would foretell of a suffering servant. I mean, look no further than 
Isaiah 53 or Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is in fact what Jesus quotes when He's on the cross. He says, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? But also other prophecies speak of a conquering king like Isaiah chapter 9, which we went over uh, as we were leading up to Christmas time. Now, a suffering servant, a conquering king. Sometimes the same prophet would deliver prophecies about both and they seem so interwoven with one another. Now, the prophets did not know which came first or necessarily that there would be two comings or how all of that would play into everything as it concerns our redemption through God's grace as a human race. But they anticipated it with every fiber of their being. Like I said, it's impossible for me to review even a fraction of the Old Testament prophecies about Christ in the time that we have today. But I will share this with you, all right? You ready? It has been calculated that in order for one man to have fulfilled all of the prophecies that were made about the Messiah to the detail as Christ did in His first coming, the odds would be one in 100 quadrillion. All right, 100 quadrillion is a, is a really big number, all right? I am not a betting man, but those are not good odds. That's, that's almost impossible odds. And that's because Jesus did fulfill all of these things because these prophecies were the Word of God and revelation of His plan. Just to illustrate what this is, this is one in one followed by 17 zeros. That's even bigger than our our national debt, if you can believe it. (laughs) All right? So just to illustrate this even further, what 100 quadrillion looks like is if you were to take 100 quadrillion uh, silver dollars and you were to lay them out all over the state of Texas, pretty big state, right? They would cover the state of Texas two feet deep in silver dollars, all right? And that would be like the likelihood of sending one of you out there blindfolded, walking all across the state of Texas, digging around, and the first one you pick is the right one. Okay, are you getting a sense of Not just the statistical improbability, but just how carefully God has revealed His plan to the prophets. And then it was fulfilled by God's divinely orchestrated plan in the God-man, Jesus Christ. The Old Testament, from Genesis to Malachi, it all builds up to and culminates in Christ. This is why in Luke chapter 4, Jesus is in the synagogue in Nazareth and He opens up, He reads the daily Scripture reading which would have happened in the synagogue that Sabbath and it happened to be Isaiah chapter 61. And we read in Luke chapter 4, verse 17, it says, And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is also why Jesus says in John chapter 5, verse 46, He says, look, if you believed Moses, 
you would believe me, for he wrote of me. This is why on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24, Jesus says to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Boy, that would be a sermon I would love to have heard. Moses and all the prophets, all of the things concerning Jesus. Jesus telling his followers those things. But this is also why when we read the Gospels, especially the way the Gospel of Matthew is written, over and over and over and over again, we come to the statement that reads, this was to fulfill. This was to fulfill. He did this to fulfill. This happened to fulfill. Over and over and over again. Because all throughout the Old Testament, God was revealing His plan about the grace that was to be yours. These marvelous truths that the prophets poured their lives into seeking, the answer for which they so earnestly longed. And Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that plan. We read in verse 12 where it says, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. See, the prophets realized they were not writing for themselves, but in fact for those who would live later. For us. And they understood that they were writing of a hope that would embrace the lives of people from every nation. They were prophesying in their office many times to the nation of Israel, to Judah, but they realized this was a hope that would touch all nations. In fact, Isaiah would later record God saying, I will gather yet others to him than those already gathered. Now we see that these things have now been announced to us through those who preach the good news. Once again, these things refer to that salvation that was to come when the prophets spoke of it and now has come through Jesus Christ. The good news has been declared. You, fallen sinner, can be reconciled to God. Jesus Christ died for your sins and He rose again. Receive that gift of what He did for you and you will be saved. The good news has been declared. And this is powerful stuff. This is even stuff into which angels long to look. Your salvation, you coming to a saving knowledge of Christ, you being one with Christ, is something that in which angels long to look. God's plan for salvation is so magnificent and so glorious that even Angels are passionate about it. God's salvation at work in your life is so powerful that it causes the angels to increase their worship and glorify God all the more. I mean, just think about that for a moment. Angels can behold the the radiant splendor of God They know how glorious God is in a way far beyond what we can currently comprehend with our finite minds. 
Angels experience God and a closeness to God that we cannot on this side of eternity. Yet with all that the angels experience of God and know about Him, God's work in redeeming you is so special, so incredible, it's so profound that it captivates the attention of angels. It's amazing stuff. Now, these prophets had immense hope for what was to come, and that's why Peter is bringing it up right here when he's relating that to the living hope that we have now through Jesus Christ and His resurrection from the dead. These prophets had immense hope in what they longed for, so how much more hope should we have in that we personally know the Messiah? God has made Him known. He has made Himself known in our hearts and in our lives. And God has revealed our destiny to us. We see it unfold in the pages of Scripture. And just as the prophets of old awaited the day of the Messiah, we await the day where we will see Him face to face. Amen? So as I said, it's impossible to go through all of the prophetic history of what's been laid out from Genesis all the way through Malachi. But I just want us to take an exercise right now and to try to transport ourselves to the minds of the prophets in their day. I don't have time to possibly go into every one, but we'll just give Isaiah as an example. To go back even further. So Isaiah, he prophesied more than 700 years before the birth of Christ. Now Isaiah, in his time, he's seeing a corruption of his culture before his very eyes. He sees a divided nation, violence, economic uncertainty, growing threats of hostile foreign powers. He sees a country that has turned its back on God, and he sees a wicked culture that worships idols. He also sees incompetent leaders. Now, he knows that the northern kingdom of Israel is about to fall. And Isaiah has prophesied about the eventual destruction of Judah as well. Things look bleak. Isaiah's prophetic ministry spanned the reign of several kings. Some of them, like Ahaz, were among the worst that ever were on the throne. And even the good king, Hezekiah, who we know to be a good king, he made some really boneheaded decisions that actually jeopardized the future of Judah. In fact, they eventually led to the decline of Judah. So given what Isaiah can see with his very own eyes and what God has revealed to Isaiah, everything is bleak, right? Yet, God gave Isaiah and all the people a glimmer of glorious hope. He gives him a glimmer of a righteous branch of Jesse who would rule over a time of unprecedented peace that the world had never before seen. Of one who would be called Mighty God, Prince of Peace, Emmanuel, God with us. About how the increase of his reign would be without end. How marvelous! What an amazing hope! Yet as glorious as that day would one day be, Isaiah looked around him and saw a nation mired in wickedness and rebellion. Isaiah, looking at the people around him, must have wondered at times if he was one of the only people around who earnestly sought God at all. What possibly could be done to restore such a fallen human race? How could we atone our way back to God's light. 
Well, we couldn't. So God spoke through Isaiah again, words many of you are very familiar with about the marvelous sacrifice of the Messiah, an excerpt out of Isaiah 53, where it reads, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 11 continues, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Now, Isaiah didn't know exactly how all of this would play out, but he looked forward to a time when this Messiah would bear our sins and make many to be accounted righteous. He looked forward to that time. We look back to the cross and see that moment when the Messiah bore our sins and made many to be accounted righteous righteous. We look back to that moment when heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. Like I said, the prophets yearned for Him more than anything. They longed for the answer. They treasured this hope. But because we know when this is fulfilled, we know who our answer is, how much more should we treasure Christ? How much more should we seek Christ? How much more if the prophets inquired and searched carefully in their own prophetic writings, should we search the Word of God and know more about Him? How much more should we conform into Him since we know what He is like? And how much more should we draw near to His embrace because He is all our hope and all our strength? So in light of this remarkable salvation, Peter continues into verse 13. He says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, just like Isaiah awaited the coming of the King, we await the return of the King. And at the revelation of Jesus Christ, that eternal grace that he will bring to us. That is what we set our hope fully on. Everything else out there is guaranteed and promised to fail you. That's what we set our hope fully on. But in the meantime, we have a call to action. We see right here we are to prepare our minds for action. We're to roll up our sleeves. We're to get rid of all that sloppy, lazy, sinful, selfish way of thinking and get a grip on the reality that is and the reality of what awaits us. We're to be sober-minded, to be able to take a serious look at your life and what's going on around you and take self-control of your life, your attitude, your mindset, your actions. To gird up the loins of your mind is how this literally reads. Get a grip 
on who you are, who God has set you apart to be, what He has called you to do in the time that He has given you, and who He is. And with your hope set fully on Christ, live according to that high calling to which you've been called. Live like you are an heir to what we read, to an inheritance that is unperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And do what He has set forth for you to do in the time that He's given you. Today, tomorrow, this week, this year, for however long He's given you, till He returns or He calls you home and you see Him face to face. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank You for that amazing hope that we can look through all of Your revelation and realize just how precious of a gift the Word is. That You've declared Your plan to us. You spoke it through the prophets and we see it being accomplished and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Yet, we still await those prophecies that are yet to pass. But Lord, we are edified so much by knowing that You spoke this. Knowing that You keep Your Word You cannot do anything but keep Your Word, Lord. And we await that hope, yet You invite us, You beckon us in to join, to partake in that hope. You've caused us to be born again to that living hope. So Lord, I just pray that we live in light of that every moment that we have. We thank You so much for Your grace that work in our lives and Your sovereignty that directs and orders all of this. We give You all the glory. In Christ's name, Amen.